Hey, Tim Ripper Owens here. Hey, listen, there's a, a great podcast that I love and, and uh, people should listen to, uh, Pedal to the Metal Radio. Uh, the thing about it is you get all your, your rock news, your metal news, uh, unsigned bands. Uh, it's, it's just good. you got to check it out. Eddie Monster. And, and listen, Pedal to the Metal. Tim Ripper Owens approves. And I'm sure they're going to play some A New Revenge and Spirits of Fire and Three Trimmers and My Judas Priest era and Iced Earth and my solo record and Beyond Fear. Fuck, I got Miggles on all Charred Walls of the Damned. But listen, everybody out there, check it out. Well, listen, we're home. We're in our house in our car. We can't really do anything. Check it out. Pedal to the Metal podcast, Metal News, Eddie Monster. Anything with the word metal in it is good for me. Check it out. Check the podcast out. Pedal to the metal. Timber Brones tells you do it. Do it. You're listening to Pedal to the Metal Radio, the podcast. And here is your host, Eddie Monster. Welcome, everybody, to another exciting edition of Pedal to the Metal. I'm your main man, Eddie Monster, here, and we're ready to walk out for another week, even though, yes, I know, we're all still under quarantine, whatever, right? Don't let it stop it. There is so much to talk about in the show. We're going to talk about Murder in the Front Row, which is an amazing documentary if you guys haven't checked it out. And we're also going to be talking about some other stuff, but right now, We got to get the business side of things out of the way. That's right. If you want to follow the show, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Eddie's Pedal to the Metal Radio Show. Uh, You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash Eddie Monster 82. That's E D D I E Monster 82. You can also uh, follow us on Instagram, instagram.com forward slash Pedal to the Metal Radio Show. Give us a, a follow on that. And last but certainly not least, you can follow our blog page at pedal to the metal radio show dot blogspot.com. Again, pedal to the metal radio show dot blogspot.com. Every week we post uh, all the links to the episode, all the ways you can listen to this right on that page. We also post the links where you can watch the videos of whatever we play on the show, whatever we reference. Also, links to the unsigned band of the week. We also do on that page. Um, like I said, we have an, quite the interesting show, and one of the first things I want to talk about is this certain documentary that I just watched called Murder in the Front Row. Now, ever since I had seen that, an advertisement for it on Instagram, I was totally pumped because it was the story of the San Francisco Bay Area thrash scene that is so famous. We all know it, you know, for Exodus Death Angel, Testament, um, you know, Violence, Forbidden, Metallica, Megadeth, uh, and so many more, right? That uh, I was curious because it was going to talk about the the beginnings of it, and it did. I mean, they went into great detail, and obviously, I've said it many and many a times. I know the Big Four thrash is considered to be. You know, Metallica, Megadeth, Anthrax, and Slayer. 
because obviously those bands released their big albums all 1986, with the exception of Anthrax uh, and their album coming out in 1987. But nonetheless, you know, those were always considered the big four thrash. But in my opinion, you can't have a big four without Exodus, in my opinion. I, I really feel, I've always felt that way. They were the original band. They were the band that Kirk Hammett was in before he went to Metallica. Uh, obviously, Gary Holt, a veteran of the scene, um, you know, who's also played in Slayer. He's He was in Exodus. And it was just a great documentary um, talking about the beginnings and how these guys had basically nothing to do in East Bay. And it was one of those things where they kind of felt like outsiders. You know, they weren't into the same kind of bands that the L.A. scene was into. Remember, L.A. at the time was turning very into a, a, a glam rock scene and very much not very metal-friendly, um, if we want to put it that way. So these guys were just looking for bands and then all of a sudden discovering their love of you know, Iron Maiden, UFO, uh, the Scorpions, you know, or at least the, the Uli John Roth you know, era of the Scorpions and stuff. And... Um, yeah, man, it was just quite the compelling documentary. They went over everything, uh, Ruthie's in, in uh, East Bay, which was apparently like the the equivalent of what CBGB's was in New York to the punk scene, um, is what that was for the thrash scene over in, in East Bay, and unbelievable, unbelievable. And they kind of talked about how um, when Bonded by Blood came out, it was actually considered the most anticipated record because Exodus was actually more of, of an East Bay band or, or, or Bay Area thrash band than Metallica. Remember, Metallica was from L.A. And Metallica moved up t- to San Francisco because Cliff Burton kind of gave them the ultimatum saying, I'm not moving to L.A. You guys can move to San Fran or wherever to, to the Bay Area and uh, if you want me and your band. And that's kind of how that went. Um, they touched on everything, you know, Metallica getting big, Exodus releasing, releasing Bonded by Blood, the next wave of thrash bands, um, like Violence, Forbidden, uh, Testament, you know, so on and so forth, Death Angel. Uh, they touched on the death of, you know, Paul Bailoff. They touched on the death of Cliff Burton um, and all that kind of stuff. Metallica playing the day on the green and how huge that was for the thrash scene. Uh, they talked about how close-knit these these bands all were and their fans and how uh, it was kind of a scary scene. Uh, I can't remember what they called them, this, this Slay, the Slay Brothers or something like that. Uh, they basically beat the shit out of posers. And Paul Bailoff was like the main guy in this whole thing. Um, and he would encourage these fans from the stage to uh, beat the shit out of posers. So if you weren't headbanging or if you wore a rap Motley Crue shirt, I mean, you basically got your ass kicked. And that was the name of the game for that. So it's a great documentary. It just came out. If you get a chance to, to watch it, it's on Amazon Prime. Do yourself a favor. If you love thrash metal and you love the history, they, they touch on Kerry King briefly being in Megadeth um, in the beginning. So if you love this scene... And you want to learn more about it, definitely do yourself a favor. Watch the documentary. Uh, it's called Murder in the Front Row. It's it's just it's awesome. It's awesome. So I give it two thumbs up. I give it an A+. It's a great documentary. Definitely check it out.
All right, so it's time to get into our next segment of the show, and it's my favorite segment of the show. It is the unsigned band of the week. This is something that I've been taking a lot of pleasure in doing. And the band that I got for today is a band that I also discovered through that Facebook group that I told you guys about called the Metal Public House. I reached out. These guys reached out back to me, and I'm so grateful that they did because this is all about promoting bands, right, from the ground up, where every single scene starts, the local scene, to wherever you are, obviously. So the band that I chose for today comes all the way from East Central Indiana. They're called Mantra of Morta, and these guys are intense. I'm telling you, the minute you pop on one of their tracks, either on Spotify or wherever the heck you want to listen to music, these guys are intense. They've played with bands like Final Drive, The Butcher Baby, Soiled, Nonpoint, Straight Line Stitch, American Overdose. list goes on and on. These guys obviously prove that they can hang and bang with the best of them. And their singer, Jesse, has the vocals to back it up. Believe me, she's got the vocals to back it up. And she's a flesh hook suspension artist, which is absolutely badass. You can see in the video for Pig, uh, it's it's insane. So you guys better be ready because they're going to absolutely rock your socks off. As cheesy as that may have just sounded. But no, they're going to kick your ass, plain and simple. Why hold the language back? They're going to kick your ass. And if you want more from them, check out their Patreon account. It's patreon.com forward slash mantra of Morta. They're also on Instagram at instagram.com forward slash mantra of Morta. You can check them out on Spotify, Google Play, iTunes, wherever you get your music. And they're also on YouTube, youtube.com forward slash mantra of Morta. And you can check them out on Facebook as well. Facebook.com forward slash Mantra of Morta. And that gets to my song that I want to play for you guys. It's the first song that I heard from them, and it's absolutely intense. The song is called Pig. It's people in general, and it's right here on Pedal to the Metal Radio, the podcast.
Welcome back, everybody. Once again, Mantra of Morta. And that was their track, Pig, People in General. Once again, check them out on Facebook, Apple Music, Google Music, uh, Spotify, wherever you can get your music, Mantra of Morta. Check them out. You will not regret it. They kick total ass. All right. So now we want to get into some news. And obviously... The show comes out on on Sundays. We talked about murder in the front row. So happy anniversary to Exodus and Bonded by Blood, which turned 35 years old on on Saturday. It is considered one of the greatest thrash metal records of all time. There you go. little tidbit of news right there. Also, for those of you who may have not been paying attention, I'm not sure what you guys are doing these days. Uh, but Post Malone obviously held a, held a charity concert of sorts. So basically it was him, Travis Barker, and a couple other guys. I don't know Brian Lee. I'm not sure where he's from. But the most important thing was Travis Barker was there. And Travis Barker is one of my favorite drummers of all time. Uh, especially from one, you know, there's a lot of drummers that I love in the punk, pop punk game. Travis Barker, bar none, one of the best. Um, so Post Malone holds this charity thing on YouTube, promising everybody that he's going to play Nirvana songs. And they did about 15 of them. And this was all for the World uh, Health Organization. They were raising money. And it was, it was fun for the most part. Uh, I will say that. Okay, it was fun. The musicianship was was kind of there. Um, there were a couple times, obviously, they knew they were either off key, um, they didn't have the right uh, tuning for some of the guitars, so they kind of would admit it afterwards. But they did 15 tracks, and obviously, you guys are wondering out there, how did Post Malone do? I would say, check it out for yourself. It's on YouTube. It's on his YouTube page. But for the most part, I thought. He was a little out of his league, a little bit. I didn't think he was terrible. I'm not going to say that, but I didn't think he was great either. And Kurt is definitely a hard musician to follow, especially if you're trying to imitate him. He's a hard act to do. There have been plenty of guys that have done, you know, Alice in Chains. They've they've attempted that. I think the grunge scene is just one of those scenes. I mean, you're never going to have anybody imitate Chris Cornell, at least not successfully. Um, 
but to try to attempt to sound like Kurt Cobain was probably not the smartest idea, but you know, it's the it's the tracks that you played, you know, and and posted the best he could uh, with what he had, and it was fun. Travis Barker was absolutely insane. If if there's any strong point out of all of this, just check out Travis Barker. He nailed it. The guy absolutely nailed it. I thought Dave Grohl was playing drums for most of it. But, uh, yeah, Travis is just proving, once again, he's an amazing drummer. Uh, but Post, I got to give him a little bit of credit. You know, he he brought – he obviously, you can tell he was a huge Nirvana fan. No doubt about it. It was there. It was written all over the place. Uh, just not his strong suit. He needs auto-tune. Um, he can sing certain songs. We've seen that on his records. I think for the most part, he needs to stick to that and allow the real artists to cover Nirvana and so on and so forth. But you can check that out on his YouTube. Uh, he definitely did a better job than Wes Scantlin of Puddle of Mud, who is a little upset and a little pissed off that people are still insulting him over his original cover of uh, About a Girl that uh, he was doing on Sirius. It was like an acoustic thing, and he just butchered that song, butchered that song. But then he went on this whole thing about, you know, how he could, like, really sing it. You know, he had to prove to everybody that he could really sing the song. And, man, there's nothing like first impressions. That's what I say. But good for him for wanting to prove to all of us who do not care that he exists to prove us wrong that's all i'm going to say about that and that's all i'm going to it's about the amount of energy that i'm going to use to talk about west scantland that's it in uh, another tidbit of news 40 years ago on saturday black sabbath released heaven and hell and this was a monumental record for one reason, one reason only. It was the first post Ozzy era Black Sabbath record, and it featured uh, Ronnie James Dio, the late great Ronnie James Dio, on vocals. This is one point in this article that I read where he was quoted saying um, he was talking about Giza Butler and how things weren't really working out. Apparently, I guess Iomi and Dio had to hire fill-ins to uh, try to finish the record because Bill Ward was obviously mixed in with alcohol and Geezer. Apparently, personal issues kind of took him out of the picture. But uh, Dio recalls, and he was quoted saying, Geezer was only there for a couple of days after I arrived, so Tony and I wrote everything. We went to Florida with another bass player to start recording. In the middle of it, Geese called Tony and said, I'd really like to come back. Is there any chance? I didn't think it was working that well with the other bass player we hired anyways, but I felt it was important that Geezer play. Um, I don't know. Yeah. He says he felt it was important that Geezer play with Tony. So it was a no brainer. Geezer came down and that was another tribulation to have to deal with because he wasn't exactly in the best headspace at the time. Um, but there's no denying, you know, that record, uh, Neon Nights, such an incredible track that the the track itself, Heaven and Hell, um, 
was absolutely amazing. I know there's always been a huge debate over who people liked better. Did they like the Aussie era of Black Sabbath or did they like the Dio era of Black Sabbath? And I've got to be honest in saying that they're two different eras and it's kind of unfair to pick one over the other. Although I can see if you grew up with Ozzy, you might be on the Ozzy side of things like I was for a very long time. I was always like, Ozzy's the only Black Sabbath singer that I know, right? That's that's what I used to say. Um, but if you look at Dio and what Dio did with Sabbath, very, very different. Songwriting was different. They were a different band. I think that's why I was almost okay years ago when they when they came out as Heaven and Hell instead of Black Sabbath because it really was. They were a different band. <clears throat> and uh, the music was different. The way the songs were structured were different. And Dio commented on that plenty and plenty of times about how he always felt his way of doing things was always different than than Ozzy. And, and uh, you know, Tony Iommi says it right here. He goes, always before with Ozzy, it was about riffs. And Ozzy would sometimes sing the riff. But with Ronnie, there were more chords than actual single note riffs. And that's what he was talking about. So Ozzy would just sing to the riff. Right, whereas in Dio would, you know, would actually sing notes and go more with the chords, you know what I mean, and and that's what made them different. So I think it's kind of unfair to to try to pick one over the other, but nonetheless, Heaven and Hell was a fantastic record. If you've never given that album a chance, definitely, definitely give Heaven and Hell a chance. Forty years old, man, that's insane. So the the next thing I want to get into. Um, is this story that I, I read on Loudwire that kind of blew my mind, and it's going to lead into a story that I have for you guys. I just practiced this because I forgot to hit record, and obviously I'm telling this for a second time. Uh, but anyways, uh, so there's a story out on Loudwire, and Fred Durst apparently got a gun pointed at his head by Eddie Van Halen at one point, Right? So there's this guy, Andrew Bennett, who is a writer, and he has a photo book that he's coming out with. And in this photo book, it's it's his time that he spent with Eddie Van Halen. And apparently there was this party, and this was right around the time that Wes Borland had quit Limp Biscuit. So obviously, you know, Fred is looking for a replacement and whatnot. And apparently somebody a record executive or somebody uh, told them that they should hang out and collaborate. And imagining Eddie Van Halen and, and Limp Biscuit, it's like imagining hell freezing over, right? You just, you, you don't think it's going to happen. But uh, apparently Fred Durst said that he thought it would be funny. Can you imagine the greatest guitar player playing with the worst band ever? And apparently Eddie Van Halen just said, fuck it, let's jam, right? So Eddie apparently, just like like he said, shows up to Fred's house in Beverly Hills. They go to jam, but somebody, I guess, was smoking weed and that offended Eddie Van Halen, so he took off. But he made the mistake of leaving all his shit at Fred Durst's house. Tries getting his stuff back. Fred He doesn't hear back from Fred Durst, so 24 hours go by. 
and Eddie drives in this military vehicle he bought at an auction. He goes all the way down and he like is dressed like he's ready to kill somebody, right? Apparently he puts a gun to his head and demands his shit back. And this is what this is how this is how Bennett recalls it. That asshole answered the door. I put my gun to that stupid fucking red hat of his and I said, Where's my shit, motherfucker? That fucking guy just turned to one of his employees and starts yelling at him to grab my shit. And can you imagine Eddie Van Halen standing on somebody's lawn with a gun, smoking a cigarette, and just being like, where's my shit? And he's got this giant assault vehicle behind him, right? It's fucking hilarious. So Fred obviously was shit in his pants. He's got a gun pointed at his head. He's like, I'm not even going to fucking battle this. right? So that's some funny shit. Uh, but apparently Bennett's book is called Eruption in the Canyon, 212 Days and Nights with the Genius of Eddie Van Halen. And you can find this book um, at eruptioninthecanyon.com. Again, eruptioninthecanyon.com. Check it out. It's a it's a photo book. So if you don't like reading a lot like I don't, um, you might like this. So that leads me to my story. And this is a fun, fun story, right? So it kind of gets complicated, like, just bear with me on this one. So the night I, f- I met Fred Durst starts off, I met several people all in the same night. So Tara Patrick, the porn star, was going to be at a local establishment in Providence, Rhode Island, local to me anyways, uh, a gentleman's club. And she was going to do a set, and she was going to sign autographs, take pics. And I figured, looking at my buddy, we had nothing else to do that night. And I said, hey, let's head down because, you know, we can meet Tara Patrick and Evan Seinfeld will be there. And, of course, my buddy sometimes is musically ignorant to a lot of stuff and has no idea who Evan Seinfeld is. I think the only way he knew who he was from was from that reality series Supergroup which was going on at the time, and it was airing on VH1. So shows you how long ago this was. Think about that for a second. So we, we head down. Sure enough, I take pics with Tara Patrick, and I get to meet Evan Seinfeld, and he's very businesslike, just kind of doesn't want to like – he's just kind of like, cool, man. Yep, all right, cool. And I get it, you know. Your, your wife's a porn star. You want to be protective. Whatever, bro. So he agrees to sign the thing that I have, you know, the picture. So he agrees to sign it, and he does. I move on, and I look at my buddy. I says, well, we might as well just hang out. And we were like two of the stingiest pricks on the planet. We didn't spend anything. Um, and I most likely spent all my money getting that autograph. At the time. So we just hung out and we met this band, Diecast. And the way we met them, we were just sitting there hanging out. And it was this guy, Kurt, and some kid from Montreal who was their new drummer. So hanging out with them, we were like, oh, you guys, you know, in a band. And they were like, yeah, we're in a band. We're in this band called Diecast. And, you know, we were like, oh, cool. That's pretty cool. And I lied and was like, oh, yeah, Diecast. All right, cool. Yeah, I know who you are. And I really didn't. But uh, whatever, we get to we get to talk to them for a little bit. They were doing their thing, 
And all of a sudden, out of the corner of my eye, I spot this guy walk in, right? And he's kind of balding. But I recognize him because he's got this tattoo on the back of his neck. Now, I sit there and I look at my friend. And I says, holy shit. And now, to just give you guys, I'm a total, total new metal fan. Always have been. I will never sit there and claim I never loved new metal because I did. And I was a huge, huge Limp Biscuit fan, huge Corn fan, huge fan of like that whole entire scene, El Nino, the whole entire scene. So I'm like, holy shit, it's Fred Durst. And my buddy was like, no fucking way. He's like, how do you know that's Fred Durst? He says, dude, the tattoo on the back of his neck. I'm like, I know that fucking tattoo. So sure enough, it's him. And I'm like telling my buddy, I says, dude, you've got to go and you've got to talk to Fred Durst, right? You got to get us in there, introduce. Because I was the shyest dude on the planet at the time. Like you couldn't get me to talk to anybody. Like check this out. So to put it into perspective on the difference between my friend and I, there was a time when we were trying to start our band. We were looking for jam spaces. And there was this jam space in Taunton. With this really creepy guy who was in a, um, he was in a Santana cover band, and you could tell he was obsessed with Santana, and he, I almost thought he thought he was the keyboard player from Santana. The guy was a real douchebag, but nonetheless, he runs this this place in Taunton, and uh, he's given us this tour, but he keeps telling us that he's we got to make this quick because I'm meeting somebody. And we were just like, okay, man, we just want to see some of the rooms, you know, like, hey, no big deal, right? Um, if you want our business, you know. So all of a sudden, he's told that whoever he was meeting was there. And it was Frank Hannon of Tesla. And I was like, holy shit. I'm staring at Frank Hannon of Tesla. And I'm staring at him. And I'm not saying anything. Right, and we're kind of across the room from each other because this guy is going over. This guy Gary, that was his fucking name, Gary, is going over there and he's talking to him. And all of a sudden, Frank Hannon beelines right to me and says, "Hey, man, I'm Frank Hannon." And I was kind of like, "Uh, yeah, I know." And I was like, "Oh, I'm Eddie." And I'm like, "Dude, I love." And I, oh my god, I made like the one mistake you. You don't make, right? It's like, I was like, oh my God, dude, I loved Mechanical Renaissance. Right? Like, in my head, like, what the fuck? Mechanical Renaissance. It's Mechanical Resonance. And he says that to me. And I'm like, oh shit. And I hit my head, like, you know, that slapping moment to your to your forehead. And I was like, oh, bro, I'm so sorry. And he was like, nah, man, it happens all the time. It's all good. Right? But my buddy, on the other hand, has no idea who Frank Hannon is. So he's like, fuck it, I don't give a shit. He goes, who are you? And Frank Hannon's going to the story, oh, I'm in Tesla. And everybody's like, yeah, I don't know, I never heard of you guys. And they got into the most honest conversation I've ever seen in my life about gear. Because they're both guitar players. And my buddy's, you know, asking them about, you know, what kind of amps do you use, you know, pickups, all that kind of shit. So that shows you the difference between us, right? If he doesn't know who the band is, he doesn't give a fuck. He'll talk to anybody. So back to the Fred Durst story, he all of a sudden tells me, no, you got to go and talk to Fred Durst. 
and I was like, dude, you got to be shitting me. So I'm walking up, and the whole time I'm walking up, I'm like, what am I going to say? Now, part of what I say is fact. Part of what I say is fiction. I'll tell you the fact, and I'll tell you the fiction. The fact is that we were trying to start a band. Fiction is what I told Fred Durst. So I walk up to Fred, and I say, hey, Fred, man, nice, you know, hey, I just wanted to, you know, meet you and say, you know, love your music and stuff. What have you guys been up to? And I'm wearing an Aussie Blizzard of Oz shirt. And he looks at it and he goes, oh, man, that's a sick fucking shirt. I love that shirt. And I was like, oh, cool, thanks. And I was like, Fred, you know, can I ask you a question? He was like, yeah, sure. And I'm like talking to him. And I get, and here's the fiction part. So I say, oh, me and my buddy, you know, we're, we're doing this band thing. And it just seems like it's going nowhere. And we can't get anywhere. And like, you know, do you have any kind of advice for us? So, of course, Fred being the guy that he is. And this will also show you how old this is, right? He looks at us and he says, guys, you just, you know, you just got to keep to the grind, man. You know, I know it's tough out there, but here's a question for you. He goes, do you have a MySpace? So it goes to show you how old this, this fucking interview was, right? And if you really want to know how old it is, look up the miseducation of Charlie Banks. Now that was a movie that Fred was filming in Rhode Island at the time because I asked him, I says, dude, what are you doing in Rhode Island? Like, like out of all the shitty spots in America that you could possibly be in, why would you be in Rhode Island? And um, he was like, oh, man, because I'm filming a movie. So, But he's like, do you have a MySpace? So I lied again. And I, I says, no, nah, I'm like, I don't have a MySpace for this band, but my buddy does. And here's the other lie. I produced his his, his music. So my buddy got free promotion for his band that likely Fred Durst was like, this sucks or whatever. And uh, nonetheless, that's the story. I've been trying to contact Fred Durst over the years, being like, hey, man, do you remember me? I met you at the uh, Cadillac Lounge. Because apparently Kerr from Diecast looked at me after my buddy insulted him, not knowing he was in the bathroom. Um. But soon you see that asshole Kurt talking to Fred Durst. Anyways, he'll remember this story. Um, but you know the the funny thing is, Kurt looked at me. He goes, "Man, I don't know what you said to Fred Durst, but that's all he could talk about was how he had to check out your buddy's man, and that was such a proud moment in my life. I was like, "Oh my God, Fred Durst is talking about me. That's so fucking awesome," because I was a huge Fred Durst fan and a huge Limp Biscuit and New Metal fan. At the time, not ashamed to admit it. And the funny thing is, is it got me back into metal. I was in a very different place before the new metal scene. Very, very different place. If it wasn't for new metal, I probably wouldn't have gotten back into metal, to be perfectly honest, because I was into rap, hip hop at the time. And I was listening to a lot of gangster rap, stuff like that. So, new metal kind of pulled me back in, and I forgot all about that scene and just started listening to more metal. I got into heavier shit actually thanks to new metal. I got into like hardcore, I got into death metal, got into black metal. These were all this was all genres I would have never listened to pre-1998, right? Would have never listened to any of that shit. Um, but nonetheless, I went, you know, it's funny. I went and saw a lot of great shows back then, but yeah, that's my Fred Durst story. Um, that I figured I would tell you guys. I just love that story. Another funny story. 
shows you the difference between the members. I met Wes Borland at this gas station that I was working at. And when he came in, the only thing I could say to Wes Borland was like, dude, you fucking rule, man. And he just kind of looks at me and goes, okay, cool, thanks. And I was like, oh, you don't need Fred Durst anyways. Fuck him. And that's kind of... <laughs> it's funny because my brain went totally stupid when he walked in the door and it didn't happen with uh, with Fred Durst. So it's funny. But yeah, that's my uh, that's my Fred Durst story for you guys today. And now in some other less interesting news, unless you watch it, and I get this really... Nothing to do but watch television these days. Uh, but Brett Michaels apparently was on The Masked Singer, and he was revealed to be the banana. And uh, if you listen to it, you know, I picked it up right away. And I don't know if it's some psychosomatic. I don't know if it's some kind of thing because I know that it was him. But when you hear him sing, like, Sweet Home Alabama or any of those other songs, you're like, man, that sounds like Brett Michaels. But maybe it's because I knew... It was him after all. But, uh, yeah, Masked Singer is kind of, I'm not going to lie, man. It's kind of fun in a way, I guess, because you're sitting there trying to figure out, oh, who is this? Who does that sound like? You know, and uh, cool to have a rocker on that show. That's all I'm going to say. So, Brett Michaels was the banana. I'm not sure if you guys are fans of Machine Gun Kelly at all, but apparently Machine Gun Kelly's been trying to branch more into rock lately. And one of the weirdest things was is seeing that he's friends with Marilyn Manson, which uh, shouldn't be surprising because Manson's pretty much friends with just about anybody. I mean, I know he was on the DMX track. Uh, he's friends with Eminem. Eminem has stuck up for him on plenty of occasions, uh, especially after Columbine happened. And... Apparently on his Instagram series, he's covered Paramore, uh, he covered Oasis, and he calls up Marilyn, he FaceTimes Marilyn Manson, which is funny. I wish I could FaceTime Manson, and asks him, hey man, I need a request, you know, what are you thinking? And Marilyn Manson just immediately answers, Rihanna, love on the brain, and he does it. I mean, he's a little hesitant, he's like, what? Rihanna, love on the brain? And Manson's just like, yeah, man, kill it. So he did it. If you want to check it out, it's out there. But uh, before I leave and leave you guys, I want to talk about one thing and one thing only, and that is the brand new Trivium record. Okay, what the Dead Men Say is an unbelievable fucking album. You got to check it out. It is an absolute masterpiece. If there was ever an album... Every band has that album, right? The album that's considered the masterpiece, right? For Marilyn Manson, to me, it's Antichrist Superstar or Mechanical Animals. It could be one or the other. I love Mechanical Animals, but Antichrist is obviously his greatest record. Uh, If you look at Metallica, it's the Black Album, right? It's that album that established them way beyond everybody else in that scene, for the Beatles, it's the White Album, right? It's that it's those albums that just, uh, you hear it and it's just like that is the greatest fucking record they ever made, right? Guns N' Roses, it's Appetite for Destruction. So, for Trivium, I've enjoyed a lot of Trivium shit over the years. I've enjoyed a lot of it, but man, I have to say, I was kind of hesitant because Matt 
was saying how this was the album of the year. Oh, you guys ready for the album of the year? Oh, the album of the year is coming. And I was like, yeah, okay, man. Everybody hypes up their shit and says this is the album of the year. But I got to be honest. Holy shit. This is the album of the year. It could be the metal record of the year. That's all I'm saying. There are just so many killer tracks on this record. The intro, nine, is amazing. There's only nine tracks on the record, by the way, so it's not a huge uh, you know, undertaking. Uh, but What the Dead Men Say, amazing track. Uh, Among the Shadows and Stones, such a fierce, in-your-face, you know, trivium record. Uh, Bleed Into Me, I love the bass riffs. I love how they do that. You know, you'll have that track where it's just like, you know, the bassist drummer going eventually, you know, and it's just a hammering track. Just amazing. The Defiant, amazing. Telling you, this is a record that you're going to want to pick up. If you weren't a Trivium fan, give it a chance. You may become one. Telling you right now, this is definitely the album of the year. So if you have the chance, go and pick up What the Dead Men Say. Listen to it on Apple Music. Listen to it on Google Music, Google Play. Listen to it on Spotify. Pick up the physical copy. Do what you got to do to be able to listen to it. It's absolutely amazing. Let's get into our chat room talk. So for this week on chat room talk, we don't have a lot of material, but we have a couple of guests. One of them is Jismark Degusha, who is the drummer of Guar, and the other one is Reba Myers. She is one of the guitar players in the band Code Orange, and we're going to start with her. I didn't get to... You got to remember when you're doing these chat rooms, it's very hard to get your questions out there sometimes. Um, a lot of times they might not see it, they might not have time, you know, so on and so forth. Most of the time it's just they don't see it. Uh, but I was lucky enough to get a, get a question off to Reba while she was doing her live stream. So the only question that I was able to get off to her was what was the one band or album that influenced you to want to pick up the guitar? And here's her answer. Um, what else we got? was the album or band that made me want to play guitar um i don't know honestly i think it was more about the guitar itself i was obsessed just with the idea of guitar and like the way it looked and the way it felt like uh my older sister got a guitar for like some sort of birthday or something and she never played it it was just sitting around i think it was like off-brand fender wasn't a real fender it wasn't even a squire it was like a Johnson, like not even nothing, nothing real. It was purple. It was sitting around and I just saw and I thought it looked cool. And I've always just loved playing instruments and like using my hands to make music and stuff like that. And uh, yeah, it just intrigued me. So I grabbed it and then I started learning whatever songs, like punk songs and stuff like that growing up in middle school. And me and Jamie like would get together when we were in sixth grade and we would rock some tracks, whatever we liked at the time. So. So again, unfortunately, that was the only question that I could get off for Reba Meyer of uh, Code Orange. Thank her again for that. But now we're going to move on to Jismark, who was a little more interesting, to say the least, when I started interviewing him. Well, I should say ask questions. But anyway, so I asked him, because he's a drummer, so I wanted to know who was his biggest influences you know, as a drummer. And uh, here's his answer as he tells me I owe him money. Um. Eddie Gatto would like to know who are your uh, some of your favorite drummers. 
Eddie Gatto. He owes me money. They all owe me money. Send me money. Wow. That's what you should do. I've got my own charity. Answer the question. I don't know about that question. I mean, there's so many good drummers. Like, most of them are in outer space, but the ones here are pretty good. So, you know, you play some songs, you steal stuff here and there, you steal a little Buddy Rich, you steal a little Alex Van Halen, you steal a little Bill Stevenson from The Descendants, you steal a little bit of this Lenny White, a little Bernard Purdy, a little Bill Ward. You steal it all, and then you just call it yours. That's what I do. So the next question that I asked them, actually me and another person asked this same question kind of sort of the same way we asked him uh what bands he loved touring with and being just mark this is his answer so what about um did you have any favorite <clears throat> bands that you tour with that you like a lot or i'm not saying that shit well you know i like all the bands we tour with if they were fucking lucky enough to survive then then we liked them if they died then we didn't like them it's pretty easy it's simple so if you're a band that toured with Guar and you're alive, we liked you. And then I just think he just refused to answer my last question. Here it is. Mm, that is yummy. So Eddie, that is yummy. Eddie Gatto wants to know, what's your favorite type of horror? And what's your favorite horror film? Eddie Gatto needs to learn lots of things. He needs to know a lot of things. His parents didn't teach him birds and the bees and whatnot. Obviously didn't teach him how to read. So he's kind of like, we're kind of similar in that respect. I I forgot the question. Next one. Obviously, he had claimed in the beginning that he didn't know how to read. That's why there's that woman there answering the questions. So apparently, we both don't know how to read. Um, I don't know how I got through college. But uh, nonetheless, that is going to do it for chat room talk. And that is going to do it for Pedal to the Metal Radio, the podcast. I hope you guys enjoyed it. And I look forward to more chat room talks. Hopefully we'll get some more uh, for you guys. I'm hoping to get more interviews, hoping to get more kind of stuff to do on this podcast, but we'll take it episode by episode. Um, So yeah, that's going to do it. And I will see you guys next week right here on pedal to the metal radio, the podcast. You're listening to Pedal to the Metal Radio, the podcast. I knew virtually nothing about Alzheimer's or any sort of brain issues until one day my wife started to do things that were atypical. Sudden outbursts, uh, becoming repetitive and asking questions. You have this tapestry just creating who you are based on 100 billion nerve cells and hundreds of trillions of connections Mm -hmm. making a network. And this disease comes in and every day relentlessly, insidiously just tears that tapestry apart. If you've got a heart and if you care about people, You don't want to see anybody go through this. And that's why I'm more optimistic than ever that we're on our way to eradicating this disease with early prediction, early detection, early intervention. Find out more at curealz.org.